a report to the nation. Tonight, the 1950 elections. My fellow citizens, that great, stalwart, conscientious, devoted senator and the American people are not to be fooled by those who violate the precept of Abraham Lincoln by saying you can't fool all the people all the time. I have fought so many crooked politicians for so long that I can detect them by their odor. How wrong, how wrong, how wrong can a governor be? We need a new governor. So I give you a great southern bell, the Alabama Bernhardt Tallulah Bank. The best governor the citizen of California ever had, Earl Warren. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States. A report to the nation. The 1950 campaign ended less than 48 hours ago. And tonight, the Columbia Broadcasting System and 173 affiliated stations present a document for ear based on the elections and the violent campaigns which they climaxed. Now, here is your narrator, the distinguished news analyst, Edward R. Murrow. We call this program a report to the nation. From time to time, we shall use this method of making a report to our fellow taxpayers on a wide variety of subjects. Tonight, we choose the campaign just ended because it is such a vivid specimen of American politics at its best and its worst. It is our way of gathering up the oral documents of the campaign, tying a red, white, and blue ribbon around them, and then saying, here, take a listen to these, before we file them among our collection of Wilkie buttons and McKinley banners. All the voices and sounds you will hear are real and are presented as they were recorded in the heat and confusion of a political year. Here, then, is the 1950 campaign, as it was fought and as it was won. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my great privilege and my pleasure to introduce to you my longtime friend and one of the greatest vice presidents this country's ever produced, the Honorable Alvin Barkley, vice president of the great state of Kentucky. Contrary to that slip of that cultured political tongue, Barkley is still vice president of the United States and president of the Senate, although many of his Democratic cronies will be gone. That was the voice of Senate Majority Leader Scott Lucas as he introduced the campaigning Veep in Peoria, where Mr. Barkley had gone to help Lucas in the toughest battle of his political life. And I hope on the third day of next January, as the presiding officer of the United States Senate, I shall have the privilege of holding my hand up and administering to Scott Lucas the oath of office as United States Senator from the state of Illinois for six more years. And that is an honor that the Vice President will not have this January. Instead, he will hold up the hand of Everett Dirksen. Hello, folks. This is Everett McKinley Dirksen, the Republican candidate for the United States Senate. I've taken this means of visiting with people over the state Former Congressman Dirksen, almost blind three years ago, fought a long, vigorous campaign against Mr. Truman's most important senator. Dirksen traveled more than 150,000 miles in a two-year battle in which he made 1,500 speeches and wore out three automobiles. One of the original backers of the Marshall Plan, he is now against it and had the support of the Chicago Tribune. Frankly, folks, we're sitting on a volcano, and the time has come to apply a remedy even though it's painful. 
What to do is quite clear. There is a weapon at your command, and you can use it on the 7th day of November, 1950. That's Judgment Day. Indeed, November 7th was a Judgment Day. It was also the climax of one of the longest, most bitter, most expensive campaigns in the history of United States politics. The technique was still just about the same, but the gadgets were changing. The helicopter became a standard piece of candidate equipment in many states, and the television camera gave the orators a chance to ask for their countrymen's eyes as well as their ears. Page 1159 of Volume 1, which you now see before you on the television. Both sides wheeled their biggest political guns into place, but were just as careful not to overlook the vital logistics of glamour. The Democrats in New York sent an eagle with sharpened tongue and claw, Miss Tallulah Bankhead, into combat. The California Republicans used a sweet-tongued dove named June Allison. Listen to them both. First, Miss Bankhead. As I have no respect for the Dixiecrats, so I have no respect for Mr. Impelitary. The noises he makes, if you recall your Macbeth, are full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And the first night audience on November the 7th is going to get the thrill of his life when we all hail Mayor Ferdinand for <laughs> Now, June Allison in California. Like all young people today, I've prayed for fresh young leadership. Knowing Mr. Nixon, I know that that prayer has been answered. He is a statesman as well as a fighting man. I've come to know Richard Nixon as a man so fair in all of his dealings that you can say of him, he does to others as he would be done by. Miss Allison's Nixon did much better than Miss Bankhead's Pagora. Mr. Nixon was running for the Senate in California, where four of the biggest vote-getters in the nation turned the Golden State into a muddy midway of oratorian invective, where the two big prizes were a seat in the Senate and the governor's mansion. I will never play footsie with communists or their fellow travelers. That was the voice of Earl Warren, a Republican who regularly gets almost as many Democratic votes as he does Republicans. The Republican vice presidential candidate in 1948 was opposed by James Roosevelt. Listen to FDR's eldest son as he answers questions on a Los Angeles street corner in front of a television camera. The gentleman wants to know what makes me think that I am qualified to be governor of California. I think in answer to it that I should point out that I had the privilege, which I'm very proud of as well as being very humble because of the great responsibility it puts upon me. I have had the privilege of being trained by a father and a mother who believed that democracy could be made to work for the welfare of all people. And I think that that's as good a training as a man could ask for. Now, Governor Earl Warren, as he took his gloves off. I want to say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that I have not heretofore made reference to this sordid page in the history of Mr. James Roosevelt. He has absolutely no record of accomplishment of any kind in the public service or in the civic life of our state. And outside of foraging for political insurance, the only private employment of any kind he has ever had was his employment at $25,000 a year by a group of left-wingers in Southern California, which his own party eventually forced him to repudiate as a dangerous group. 
Governor Warren was returned to Sacramento for his third term by an overwhelming majority of more than a million and emerges as a strong Republican candidate for the presidency in 52. But the more colorful race in California, where no holes were barred and a few new ones invented, was the race for the Senate, where Congresswoman Helen Gahagan Douglas opposed Representative Richard M. Nixon. Here, the issues were clearly defined. Mrs. Douglas always backed and had the endorsement of Harry Truman. Nixon was one of the Republicans' heavy young punchers in Washington, claimed to have discovered Alger Hiss and others. Mrs. Douglas said Nixon persecuted innocent people. Nixon accused her of giving comfort to the communist left. And ironically, one of the vital issues of this strange campaign was a Bronx congressman, Vito Mark Antonio, 3,000 miles away. Both candidates were on the defensive. Here is Nixon talking. And this is a beauty. This sheet says that Mr. Nixon, and this is terrible, they say, voted with a man by the name of Vito Mark Antonio, whom they describe in this sheet as a Communist Party liner. They say I voted with this terrible man five times. And they say that's a terrible thing. And incidentally, this sheet, in case you didn't know, was put out by the Helen Douglas Senator Committee in Southern California. All that I say is this, let's look at the record and what do we find? We find that Mrs. Douglas voted with him not two times, not 50 times, not 100 times, but 354 times in six years more than any other member of Congress. And so when they put out a piece of literature that says Mrs. Douglas voted 300 and some times with a congressman called Mr. Mark Antonio, it is, to say the least, tricky. There are two programs in Congress, the Democratic program and the Republican program. Mr. Mark Antonio comes from the city district, working man's district. He has supported the Democratic program on such matters as housing, minimum wage, social security, and so forth. On matters of foreign policy, he has followed Mr. Wary and Mr. Taft and my Republican opponents. And it is on these bills that they have been in accord with the thinking of the Soviet Union. Evidently, the people of California thought that young Mr. Nixon was more correct than Mrs. Douglas. Her defeat was a blow to the fair deal and the administration. We need a new governor. Yes, it's plain to see. We need a new governor. The old one has to leave. We will all put John Lodge in as governor, a man you can believe. The old one In Connecticut, there were a governorship and two Senate seats in contest. The advertising men and the bankers marched into combat behind the singing commercials. The music you hear is heralding the candidacy of the grandson of Henry Cabot Lodge. A far cry from the bearded Boston isolationist who fought Wilson. Handsome John Lodge, a war hero and a former movie actor, fought his opponent, advertising wizard Chester Bowles, with his own devices. Yes, it's plain to see we need a new governor. The old one has to be. Connecticut will get their new governor. Fair dealer Bowles had conceded by 10.30 at night. In the two Senate races in that state, Brian McMahon virtually ignored the rest of the Democratic slate and based his campaign on his work as chairman of the Senate Atomic Energy Committee. His fellow citizens agreed that McMahon was not expendable, so they sent him back to Washington. In the other Connecticut seat, Governor Bowles' former partner, Bill Benton, flew more helicopter miles than any other candidate in a closely fought struggle against Prescott Bush. Both Yale men, the flavor of old Eli was definitely there. Here's Mrs. Benton as she spoke for her bill. Friends, 
It is a matter of great pride to me that my husband, Bill, is one of the two United States senators from our own state of Connecticut. You see, our Connecticut roots go a long way back. For five generations, the Bentons lived in Tolland County. Bill's grandfather was once principal of the old Fairfield Academy, only two miles from where we now live in Southport. I first met Bill when he was a student at New Haven, and I was at Connecticut College. Now our own boy is a freshman at Yale. We are poor in a land who have lost our way. Not to be outdone, candidate Bush hired the Brooklyn Dodger Symphony Band, formed a quartet and sang the Wittenpoof song from the mouth of the Thames to the estuary of the Merrimack. As late as 3 a.m., Yale and the rest of Connecticut were split in their allegiance to these two sons. But by noon of the next day, it was apparent that Benton's helicopter had carried further than Bush's Wittenpoof. By only a few hundred votes, Bill Benton was still senator. And Maury's would never be the same. Who tore down price control? It was Taft. And who wants to strip the farmer of his security against the risk of nature? It is Taft again. That was Joe Ferguson, running against the most important man in the 1950 election, Robert Alfonso Taft, Ohio's veteran senator. Bob Taft knew that he had to win in 1950 or not run for the presidency in 52. Organized labor knew this too and poured huge sums of money into Ohio to beat him. The CIO, the AFL, and Mr. Lewis's mine workers formed a strange marriage to beat him. The Democratic Party agreed that their biggest task was to beat Taft. The eyes of the nation were on Ohio. And to oppose Taft, the Democrats nominated an undistinguished politician unknown outside the state, Joe Ferguson, whom you hear again now. Again, when housewives complained that food prices were too high, who told them the answer was to eat less? It was Taft. Everybody who can see, hear, or read is talking about the flood of Taft money pouring over Ohio in this campaign. From one end of the state to the other, you can hear continuous band music to drum up the crowd. Call to hear Taft explain why he spent 12 years in the Senate voting to lower the income of Ohio farmers and to listen to the Taft theory that good wages are bad wages. Ferguson shook a million hands and did little more. Taft covered the state twice in 24 months of the hardest campaigning of his life. This is quite true. I've opposed the socialistic measures of the CIO that Mr. Ruth represents. I've strenuously opposed those measures as presented to Congress by Mr. Truman for detailed control of economic planning, uh, economic control of every business, every farm, telling every farmer and every businessman how to run his business contained in the Spence Bill, the Brannan Plan. I've opposed universal compulsory socialized medicine and the other proposals to socialize all welfare services and transfer them to a Washington bureau. I opposed, of course, their effort to repeal the Taft-Hartley law. At 10.30 on election night, Taft went on the air to make this startling prediction. Well, I will win by well over 250,000 states, probably more. Ferguson still thought he had a chance. Taft won by half a million votes. Throughout the campaign, 
The Republican guns were well loaded with ammunition, and their sights were high. The Democratic battery was commanded by Harry Truman. All right, I'm doing it. Then we got that Republican, no good, do nothing, 80th Congress, about which I told you in 1948. They took away Social Security from nearly a million people. They started to destroy the Union through that infamous Taft-Hartley law. It was the same voice as the one that turned the tide in 48. The same phrases, the same charm. But this time, the magic didn't work. The candidates he needed most and campaigned for the most were beaten. Lucas in Illinois, Myers in Pennsylvania, Douglas in California, Albert Thomas in Utah, and perhaps the toughest blow of all for Harry Truman, Millard Tidings of Maryland. You and I know that the Truman Tidings Combine has done everything possible to get our eyes away from these evidences of communist influence that the whole country talks about. That is the voice of John Marshall Butler, who fought Senator Tidings chiefly on the issue of communism in high places. Butler's campaign was based on the allegation that Tidings had been lax in his conduct of the Senate committee investigating Senator McCarthy's charges against Owen Lattimore and many others. You and I know that Senator Tidings did not conduct his so-called probe of the State Department loyalty as though he wanted to find out anything. Nord Tidings fought back, called the charges completely unfounded, said he was trying to keep the loyalty hearings fair. I want to point out the utterly and deliberately malicious and false attacks by the Republican opposition on my personal character and on my patriotism. I first hold up before you a full-page advertisement published by my opponent in the Baltimore American of yesterday. This advertisement, which I hold up, makes charges concerning the investigation of employees in the State Department. And I quote, Republican counsel was never allowed to question a witness, end quote. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a deliberate and an unmitigated lie. Nord Tidings lost to John Marshall Butler by 150,000 votes, and Mr. Truman lost one of his trusty old war horses. On the Democratic side of the picture, fair dealer Herbert Lehman of New York was returned to the Senate. Democrat John Pastore of Rhode Island became the first citizen of Italian extraction to go to the Senate. Warren Magnuson won in Washington state. And in the president's home state, Forrest Donnell, a Republican, and one of the thorns in the Truman skin, was beaten by Hennings, who won Truman's endorsement only three days before the election, and who is not a fair dealer. Democrat Pat McCarran won in Nevada, but he seldom votes with the fair dealers. In Oklahoma, in perhaps the most unique race of the campaign, they pulled out all the stops, and a preacher hit the political sawdust trail. Reverend Bill Alexander versus Mike Monroney. This is my prayer. It may sound strange for a political broadcast, but people, I hope you'll make it your prayer. God give us men. A time like this demands great minds, strong hearts, true faith and ready hands. Men whom the lust of office does not kill men whom the spoils of office cannot buy, men who possess opinions and a will, men who love honor, and men who will not lie. Folks, I'm a minister. I'm proud of it. 
I ask you to let me stand for you in the United States Senate. Well, goodbye and God bless you, everyone. That was Reverend Bill Alexander, who claimed to be running with divine guidance and who severely challenged veteran Congressman Mike Monroney's bid for Oklahoma's Senate seat. Here is Mike Monroney's rebuttal. I am certain that I do not feel that my opponent's experience in training, either as master of ceremonies in the St. Louis nightclub or as a minister, qualifies him for the important job of being your United States Senator. I can't and I won't promise you an emotional field day that my opponent offers. I can't and I won't promise you the glamour and showmanship that my technicolored opponent thinks he has. I can't and I won't claim that I had a personal command from heaven to make this Senate race. Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plain and the waving corn is fresh each morn, decided that the Reverend should return to his preaching and that the gentleman from Oklahoma should be Mike Monroney. And there were other issues besides candidates that the people had to decide on. In South Carolina, the poll tax was voted out. Montana refused to legalize slot machines. California voted against legalizing gambling. In Maryland, a law was passed making vivisection legal. It applies only to stray dogs. Below the Mason-Dixon line, that which was solid remained solid. With Russell Long, Lister Hill, Olin Johnston, and all the other Democrats returning to office. Not necessarily to vote along with the Truman Democrats, however. In the House, the Democrats retained control with Sam Rayburn of Texas going back for his 20th term. Throughout the land, the vote was big, the heaviest non-presidential year ballot in history, with more independent voting and ticket splitting than ever before, especially in New York, where the voting is always heavy and no holes are barred. In both the city and the state, the campaign was raucous and bitter. As in the years gone by, the band played East Side, West Side, but it wasn't the Fulton Street brass of Al Smith. Vincent Impelitari, the acting mayor, used a Guy Lombardo record with which to introduce himself. And the music was the only sweet thing to be heard. Hello, New Yorkers. This is Vincent Impelitari, your acting mayor. As we enter the final week of the campaign, I want to issue a warning. It has become clear that my desperate opposition, as they watch their dream of political empire fade before them, will reach brand new heights of frenzy, new depths of scurrility. Vincent Impelitari was president of New York City Council under O'Dwyer. When Mayor O'Dwyer left to become ambassador to Mexico, Impey, a loyal Tammany man, wanted the nomination. He didn't get it. So he became, overnight, an independent with experience. He was opposed by Pecora, Corsi, and Paul Ross. In winning, by more than 200,000 votes, Impelitari became the first mayor in the history of New York City to be elected without the support of a major political machine. I am here in New York to satisfy myself as to the status of Thomas E. Dewey's diaper. That's Harold Dickey. I feel a proprietary interest in that diaper. I first discovered it when Dewey naively threw it into the ring as an adolescent candidate for the Republican nomination for president. 
I report that Tom's diaper is slipping. That was Harold Ickes, who has haunted Governor Dewey's political aspirations for years. This year, he was imported from his farm near Washington to haunt his old foe again. But this time, nothing seemed to have slipped. Dewey, always a big vote-getter in New York, had snapped back after two presidential defeats and run way ahead of Walter Lynch, a virtually unknown Bronx Democrat. Early in June, Governor Dewey had said he was not a candidate for re-election. Between June and September, Dewey endorsed his Lieutenant Governor Joe Hanley as his successor. But on the night of September 7th, it was not Hanley but Dewey who was nominated. Hanley had bowed out, had agreed to run for the Senate against Herbert H. Lehman. A month later came the famous Hanley letter written by Mr. Hanley after a conference with Governor Dewey. It said in part, I have received certain unalterable and unquestionably definite propositions. If I consent to run for senator instead of governor, I have definite assurances of being able to clean up my personal financial obligations in 90 days. In the event I am defeated, I have an ironclad unbreakable arrangement. And so it went. Hanley ended his letter in these words. I am humiliated, disappointed, and heartsick. Here is Governor Dewey's explanation. And finally, on September 1st, before the Republican convention, Governor Hanley came to me demanding that I run. And the next day, Governor Hanley released a letter, retiring from the governorship race. And two days later, after another two days of pretty terrible soul-searching, I announced that I would run again for governor, but only if Joe Hanley would run for the United States Senate. And the next day we had lunch, and we talked it all over. And he found that since he could get a pension, the same kind of a pension Senator Lehman draws, his income would be larger than ever before, and he would be able to do it in fairness to his family. And as he left, having told me that he would run, he said, if I ever, if I should lose, of course you know I'll need a place. And I said to him, as I had said many times before, Joe... I would be proud to have you in the state government. And everybody who is listening, I want you to know, Joe Hanley is my friend and I love him. He is also a great public servant. Now in their desperation, these Flynn Tammany Democrats try to say Joe Hanley is disqualified for office because he has some debts. He told you last night, $100,000 of debts he assumed voluntarily 20 years ago. You know. They also say that somebody promised to pay his debt. Well, I wish they had, but it happens, as he reported to you, that nobody has. Governor Dewey's explanation was sufficient for most of the voters, and they returned him to Albany for his third term. But old, battle-weary Joe Hanley was forced to spend election week in a hospital, suffering from exhaustion, as his opponent, Herbert Lehman, almost as good a vote-getter as Dewey, won by a quarter of a million votes. New York had elected a Republican governor, a Democratic senator, and an independent mayor. You are listening to A Report to the Nation on the 1950 elections, featuring Edward R. Murrow and the voices of many of the candidates in actual records made from their campaigns throughout the country. Now, once again, Mr. Murrow. We have tried to bring you a political document for ear. In this election, two divided parties divided the vote. The Republicans won an important round, but not a victory. To those who say Truman's fair deal is dead, 
It may be answered that in the last Congress with a Democratic majority, the Brannan plan, compulsory health insurance, repeal of the Taft-Hartley law, three pivots of the fair deal, could not be put through. The Democratic Party didn't have the votes. It won't have them in the next Congress. To those who say that American foreign policy will be changed, it may be recalled that the Marshall Plan, aid to Greece and Turkey, went through a Republican-dominated Congress. The control of both houses and of foreign policy remains in the hands of the Truman administration. The contest for control of the Republican Party in preparation for the 52 campaign is just beginning. Those who fail to vote and deplore the outcome may recall George Jean Nathan's statement that bad officials are elected by good citizens who do not vote. The whole thing is over, and it's something of a relief. We have demonstrated again that the people are sovereign. Good night and good luck. A report to the nation, the 1950 campaign, was produced and transcribed in New York with active assistance from newsrooms of more than 40 affiliated stations. The program was written and produced by Mr. Morrow and Fred Friendly. The engineer was Ed Gill, Dan McDonald speaking. Be sure to hear Edward R. Morrow on his regular news broadcast each weekday evening, Monday through Friday, over most of these same stations. His comprehensive analysis of the news is heard by millions on CBS.